Hello, my name is Edward Collins and you are listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898. This podcast series features interviews with leading experts in the areas of Portuguese and Spanish history, from the beginning of the Portuguese discoveries in 1415 to the end of Spanish dominion in America at the end of the 19th century. And this podcast series is brought to you by UCD's HistoryHub.ie and the School of History. Although I will be speaking to numerous experts on a variety of topics relating to the history of Portugal and Spain, I would like to begin this podcast series by providing listeners with a brief history of both countries in the 15th and the early 16th centuries. Specifically, I would like to attempt a concise explanation of how these Iberian neighbours, which were relatively minor European kingdoms in the 15th century, managed to become two of the most powerful empires in the early modern era. I would like to note that this podcast does not provide a complete overview of Portuguese or Spanish history or the origins of their empires. Rather, it aims to provide a basic introduction for listeners who are unfamiliar with the subject. And I hope that this introduction, as well as the wide range of topics that we will be discussing in future podcasts, will encourage you, the listener, to examine the areas of Portuguese and Spanish history in more detail. Considering their geographical proximity, it's perhaps unsurprising that Portugal and Spain share a long history of interaction, which includes periods of competition and conflict, but also much cooperation, cultural exchange and royal intermarriage. And with this in mind, it's difficult to decide on a starting point from which to explore their histories. But ultimately, 1415 emerges as a fairly useful date to begin. This is because 1415 is generally considered to signal the beginning of the Portuguese discoveries for reasons that I will explain later. Before this, however, it's important to note that what we today recognise as Spain did not exist as a political entity in the early 15th century. The Iberian Peninsula was instead divided into a number of kingdoms, which, aside from Portugal, included the kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, Navarre and Granada. Navarre was mired in continual instability and conflict in the 15th century and was eventually annexed to Castile in the early 16th century, whereas Granada was an emirate under Moorish control in what is today known as Andalusia. Castile and Aragon, for their part, were two larger kingdoms and were involved in their own internal political disputes for much of the 15th century. And although the Portuguese had been involved in various skirmishes with the Castilians since the 14th century over the Canary Islands and over Castilian inheritance claims, Portugal was a relatively unified and stable kingdom by the early 15th century, ruled by the Avis dynasty under King João I. In 1415, João sent a military expedition to invade the North African city of Ceuta, which was a valuable strategic and economic asset. After one day of fighting, the Portuguese took the city, and this success seems to have provided at least some impetus to explore deeper into the western African coastline. The historian Charles R. Boxer offers various overlapping motivations for Portuguese exploration, and suggests that the main impulses came from a mixture of religious, economic, strategic and political factors. And these factors were, to varying degrees, as follows. A renewal of crusading missions against the Muslims, a search for Guinea gold, the quest for Prester John, who was a fabled Christian prince of the East, and the search for oriental spices. Indeed, while the capture of the city of Ceuta was partially inspired by a religious desire to remove Muslim influence from that city, it seems that its annexation provided the Portuguese with information relating to the lands of the upper Niger, which were sources of gold. 
It also provided information about the camel caravans of the western Sudan, as well as the Barbary Muslims who controlled the flow of the gold trade. It's this period after 1415 that signals the beginning of the so-called Age of Discovery, at least for the purposes of this podcast series. Portuguese interest in exploring the northern and western coastlines of the African continent had been in mind from at least this date, and the 1419 discovery of Madeira by two squires of King João's son, Prince Henry, was another significant milestone in this early period of exploration. Colonization of the Madeira Islands was instigated in about 1425, although some of the Portuguese court were also looking to the more spiritually and strategically lucrative shores of the African continent under the cover of Christian missions. These missions were guided strategically by Prince Henry, who has come to be known in English as Henry the Navigator, in spite of the fact that he ventured no further than Ceuta. Henry's zeal for further conquest in North Africa was not shared by his father, although his brother Duarte, or Edward, who inherited the Portuguese throne in 1433, agreed to lead an attack on Tangier in 1437 to help secure the safety of Ceuta. This expedition was an unmitigated disaster for the Portuguese, who failed to take the city. Henry's youngest brother, Fernau, was captured in battle and died in prison in 1443. The divided views of the Avis house on conquering North Africa characterised much of the period from the 1530s. When King Duarte died in 1538, his son Afonso V was too young to inherit the throne. And after an internal struggle, Pedro, another brother of Duarte and Henry, ruled as regent until Afonso came of age. Pedro's reign saw a greater emphasis placed on Atlantic exploration, both towards the Azores as well as a further south along the African coast. In 1440, the Portuguese also sent an expedition to the Canaries to challenge Castilian ownership. In 1443, Pedro granted Henry the rights of navigation and trade along the African coastline, and it's from this time that efforts were made to actively update new maps with information about the area, instead of relying on antiquated charts. This, according to contemporary documentation, was directed by Henry, who sent ships further south with this express purpose. This period is also, however, inextricably tied to the beginnings of the European slave trade in Africa, which promised quick returns on investments made by merchants as well as the Portuguese nobility, although I I would like to note that the native Guanche peoples of the Canary Islands were traded as slaves by the Portuguese, the Castilians and Catalans as early as the 14th century. And it was the burgeoning slave trade in Africa that necessitated voyages further south so that by the time of Pedro's death in 1449, Explorers had reached as far as modern-day Sierra Leone. From the time of the accession of Alfonso V to the Portuguese throne in 1448, however, a renewed focus was placed upon conquests in North Africa under the direction of Henry, leaving Atlantic exploration in the hands of merchants, which progressed slowly thereafter. The Portuguese justification for conquest, and indeed for claiming possession of lands explored, was contingent upon authorization by the Catholic Church through a succession of papal bulls. In return for papal approval, the Portuguese would respond in kind by bearing the cost of building churches, sending missionaries and establishing an ecclesiastical presence in the newly discovered realms. The ease with which Portugal obtained such extensive rights over vast areas of land and the people who inhabited them may be explained by making reference to the Order of Christ, founded in Portugal in 1319 to replace the recently suppressed Knights Templar. Prince Henry had been Grand Master of the Order of Christ, ensuring the success of the arrangement, which in practice represented a symbiotic network of converging interests through the religious facade of the Order. 
If religious and economic considerations directed the scope of the Portuguese explorations, technological development allowed for their expansion. While the reign of Afonso V was not an especially pioneering time for the Portuguese discoveries, the period is still important because the first recorded use of celestial navigation occurred at this time. The navigator Diogo Gomes, who had landed on the Cape Verde Island in 1456, explored the Guinea coast between 1460 and 1462, and he recorded that he used an instrument known as a quadrant to measure the height of the pole star and found it to be accurate. While the pole star had been used as a guide for mariners for many centuries, using it to establish one's latitude and distance travelled was not achieved until the Portuguese managed it around this time. The practice of determining one's position at sea by astronomical measurement was a turning point in seafaring. It was at this point that navigation began a transition to scientific process and moved away from the old methods of sailing and staying close to the shore to recognise familiar landmarks. And this in turn enabled voyages further out into the ocean away from the site of landmarks. As such, this is one of the great contributions by the Portuguese to the history of science, as is the resulting production of maps with much more accurate depictions. The Portuguese continued to use and refine instruments at sea, and in addition to the quadrant, they employed instruments such as the cross staff, as well as the mariner's astrolabe, which was in use from at least 1481. And the astrolabe was particularly useful since it could measure the height of the sun. So the Portuguese were involved in an increasingly hostile rivalry with Castile in the same period. Conflict between the kingdoms over the Canary Islands raised its head periodically throughout the 15th century and continued to be a point of discord between the kingdoms until 1454. The relative disinterest in the Canary Islands by the newly crowned Castilian king Enrique IV, as well as his marriage to King Alfonso's sister, mitigated tension somewhat. However, the tradition of intermarriage between the Portuguese and Castilian kingdoms complicated domestic affairs for both. Enrique's proposed successor, Juana, was to become the second wife of Alfonso, although her parentage was in doubt. Upon the Castilian king's death in 1474, his sister Isabella I of Castile was proclaimed queen, leading to immediate conflict with Portugal who interceded on Juana's behalf. Alfonso and Juana married in 1475 and proclaimed themselves king and queen of Castile, Leon and Portugal. The resulting conflict between Isabella's forces and those of Juana and Alfonso became known as the War of the Castilian Succession. This conflict was significant not only for the political implications of Portuguese and Castilian intermarriage, but also for the fact that immediately after conflict was instigated, Isabella proclaimed a new effort to pursue Castilian interests on the African coast, presenting a direct challenge to Portuguese interests. The end of the war in 1479 confirmed Isabella's position as Queen of Castile, although it can't really be said that it was entirely detrimental to Portuguese interests because it produced the Treaty of Alcacelas at its conclusion in September of that year. With this treaty, any question of Portuguese authority in the Atlantic was effectively settled, at least where Castilian rivalry was concerned for the time being. In return for possession of the Canary Islands, Castile recognised Portuguese claims on lands discovered or undiscovered in Africa and the Atlantic. By the time Alfonso V's son, João II, inherited the Portuguese throne in 1481, Portuguese navigators were engaging in techniques involving scientific instruments and advanced calculation that further enabled the ambitious travel in which the new king himself was known to have had a keen interest. In contrast to Alfonso V, 
His son, Joao II, was much more enthusiastic about exploration and navigation, although their interests were perhaps influenced by their respective responsibilities. And certainly, peace with Castile allowed Joao II to focus on Portugal's imperial ambitions. In the same year that he was crowned, Joao ordered the construction of São Jorge de Mina, or Elmina Castle, a fortress and trading post on the Guinea coast, which is today in Ghana. African gold and other commodities could be diverted from here to Portugal, thereby disrupting the camel routes of the Sahara, and it was this gold that allowed a definitive resumption of the discoveries along the African coast. Although today the fortress stands as a stark reminder of the brutal legacy of the Portuguese slave trade which was centred on this castle from the time of its construction. After the construction of Elmina Castle, the first voyages beyond the equator and the Congo River were recorded, when the Portuguese reached Cape Santa Maria between 1482 and 1484. In 1486 they reached what is today Walvis Bay in Namibia, and then in 1487 and 1488 an expedition under the command of Bartolomeo Diaz rounded the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Agulhas, reaching the Indian Ocean for the first time, before returning to Lisbon in December 1488. Diaz's rounding of the southern tip of Africa was a culmination of 70 years of experimentation, adaptation and a methodology that began as a derivation of old practices and became increasingly sophisticated, especially in the second half of the century. It was this evolution of navigational practices that allowed Vasco da Gama to lead an arduous expedition from 1497 to 1499 into the Indian Ocean and on towards the eastern shores of India. In the meantime, Portugal's Spanish neighbours had undergone a series of transformations that were no less dramatic. Aside from the Castilian conflict with Portugal, the marriage of Isabella I to Ferdinand II of Aragon in 1469 united both kingdoms, allowing for the emergence of unified policies and ambitions domestically and overseas. After the cessation of hostilities with Portugal in 1479, the Castilian and Aragonese king and queen, who came to be known as the Catholic monarchs, were able to focus mainly on domestic matters, which consisted mainly of maintaining order in their respective realms. The Catholic monarch's desire for political unity in Castile and Aragon, which was almost impossible to achieve realistically, was fulfilled by proxy through a religious solidarity that found appropriate enemies within their respective kingdoms, namely Jews and Muslims. Of the three major faiths in Spain, the Jews were the smallest community. Like the Muslim populations, they tended to live in ghettos called Alhamas in the major towns. They were excluded by popular anti-Semitism and by state legislation from several aspects of public life among Christians. They instead devoted themselves to specific professions where they could benefit from the private favour of the upper classes. And they were known as Sephardic Jews, centred in the Iberian Peninsula, in particular in Spain. Sephardic Jews had established populations in all major towns and cities in Iberia in the 15th century and lived in relatively peaceful coexistence with Christians and Muslims. Although anti-Jewish riots in Castile and Aragon in 1391 had led many Jews to convert to Christianity to save their lives. These Jews who were forcibly converted became known as conversos. They emerged as a distinct social group that was integrated into mainstream Christian society, although they were not assimilated. In spite of conversion, anti-Semitic sentiment remained throughout the 1400s, and this was compounded by the concern of genuine converts, who feared that apostatizing conversos would undermine their own positions at court and in society. 
This fear coincided with Ferdinand and Isabella's changing policies, which, although they were initially tolerant of Jews, sought to identify them as enemies for political purposes. In November 1478, the Catholic monarchs applied to Rome for a papal bull, granted by Pope Sixtus IV, establishing an inquisition into heresy. The Inquisition was created specifically to investigate the religious orthodoxy of conversos. Legally, the Inquisition had no authority over unbaptized Christians and consequently could not touch the Jews. Its main purpose, however, was undoubtedly to eliminate Jewish culture from Catholic Spain. By 1492, there were Inquisition tribunals in several cities in Castile. In the same year, Ferdinand and Isabella issued the Alhambra Decree, which ordered all Jews to convert or leave the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon within three months. Numbers are uncertain, but of about 70,000 Jews in Castile and about 10,000 in Aragon, many accepted baptism and about 50,000 chose exile. The principal destination was Portugal, but they chose other destinations in the Mediterranean, North Africa and the Middle East. The Battle of Granada in 1492 also saw the culmination of the 700-year-old Reconquista, or Reconquest, by Christian rulers against the Islamic rule in Spain. Although the terms of peace in the Treaty of Granada promised religious tolerance and fair treatment, forced religious conversion became common practice in the city in 1499, under the direction of Cardinal Gonzalo Jiménez de Cisneros, who used a local rebellion to convince the Catholic monarchs that the Muslim population of Granada was not complying with the terms of the treaty. Additionally, the 1490s saw a steady flow of Muslim immigrants, who were mainly comprised of the upper classes to North Africa, uneasy as they were with increasing incursions on their way of life. By 1500, Cisneros claimed that there were no more Muslims left in Granada and began applying the same methods of conversion on the outskirts of the city. In spite of his harsh methods, Cisneros received the approval of the Catholic monarchs as well as his colleagues in the church due to the high conversion rates that he boasted. The end of Muslim resistance and rebellion in 1501 saw rebels faced with a stark choice of conversion or exile, effectively ending any pretense at tolerance. The year that the Catholic monarchs took the city of Granada was also the year in which a Spanish expedition stumbled upon some previously unknown islands in the western Atlantic, which, aside from the possibility of impinging upon Portugal's maritime interests, did not reveal initially the extent of their significance. Spanish ambitions, born of a desire to challenge Portuguese power in Africa and India, sought to avoid the terms of the 1479 Treaty of Alcasavas by sailing west to reach India. The settling of domestic political matters by 1492 allowed Isabella and Ferdinand to turn their attention to challenging Portuguese interests, a matter accelerated by Christopher Columbus's novel idea of reaching India by sailing west. Columbus, a Genoese navigator, believed that a western route by the Atlantic was much shorter than the African route being established by the Portuguese, and first petitioned the Portuguese in 1485 to equip an expedition to sail west. Joao II's cosmographers, however, correctly concluded that Columbus had greatly underestimated the western distance between Europe and the east. When he again petitioned the Portuguese king in 1488, Columbus was unfortunate enough to have been at court at the same time that Bartolomeu Diaz had returned to Portugal with news that he had rounded the Cape of Good Hope, thus establishing the southern limit of the African continent and potentially paving the way for open seas to India. Columbus had also in the meantime failed to persuade the Catholic monarchs in Spain, also because their cosmographers dismissed his estimation of the distance from Europe to China. Columbus found a more receptive audience upon his return to Spain in 1492. 
while Bartolomeo Diaz's success had doomed Columbus's project in Portugal, it inadvertently gave new life to his proposal in Spain. He argued that Diaz had shown that the African continent was much larger than previously estimated, meaning that the body of water surrounding it, he claimed, was smaller, concluding that it was likely that a western journey to China was entirely possible. The resulting 1492 expedition to the so-called New World turned out to be of profound significance, not only because of the discovery of a huge populated continent that was previously unknown in Europe, but also by establishing the Spanish as a significant competitor to Portuguese interests. Whereas previously Portugal had been unopposed in Europe in their pursuit of eastern riches, the opening of a new route and a new world by Columbus and the Spanish signalled a challenge to Portuguese hegemony. Departing from Spain with three ships, the Pinta, the Niña and the Santa Maria on the 3rd of August 1492, Columbus landed on the Canary Islands for provisions and repairs, remaining there until the 6th of September. On the 12th of October 1492, the expedition sighted land, an island which they named San Salvador in what is today the Bahamas. Columbus and his crew encountered friendly natives who presented him with gold gifts. Columbus explored the northeast coast of Cuba, landing on the 28th of October, and arrived on the island of Santo Domingo on the 5th of December, which he named La Española or Hispaniola. He believed Hispaniola to be Japan because the natives referred to part of it as Sibau, which he believed sounded like Sipangu, the name given to Japan by Marco Polo. Columbus therefore believed that he had discovered his sought-after western route to Asia, disproving Spanish and Portuguese cosmographers. At no time did he state explicitly that his discoveries were a hitherto unknown world. This was influenced no doubt by the fact that his royal concessions and awards were contingent upon his successful discovery of the eastern shores of Cathay, or China. So Columbus departed the newly discovered lands in early 1493 and landed in Lisbon on the 4th of March, driven there by a storm. The Portuguese king, João II, requested a meeting with him and, after learning of his discoveries, claimed that the lands belonged to Portugal according to the Treaty of Alcasovas. Aware that this presented the first tangible threat to Portuguese maritime power, João ordered a fleet to retrace Columbus's journey. The Catholic monarchs of course protested these plans and requested papal assistance to help determine the area discovered by Columbus. In 1493, the Pope, Alexander VI, issued the so-called Bulls of Donation, one of which decreed that all lands 100 leagues west of the Azores or the Cape Verde Islands belonged to Spain, or to Castile, to be more precise, since Columbus's expedition was funded by Isabella. Another papal bull gave Castile jurisdiction over India, which had not yet been reached by either kingdom. This was contested by Joao II, who demanded further mediation. The resulting negotiations led to the eventual signing of the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, which established a demarcation line 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands. All territory east of the line was under Portuguese jurisdiction. The problem of measuring longitude in the 16th century, however, meant that the exact location of the line was unknown and the solution provided by the treaty was therefore only temporary, as later events were to prove. Moreover, some European powers were bemused by Portugal and Spain's presumption that they could divide the world among themselves. King Francis I of France remarked some years later, The sun shines on me as well as on others. I should be very happy to see the clause in Adam's will which excluded me from my share when the world was being divided. Within a month of arriving home, Columbus had agreed a second voyage with Isabella and Ferdinand. The main purpose of this voyage, which departed in September 1493, 
was settlement and conversion of the native peoples in the Caribbean. Upon his return to Hispaniola, however, he found that the fort he had built there was destroyed and several of his men murdered by the natives. So his punishment of the natives was swift and brutal and set the stage for future Spanish policy in Hispaniola. Subjugation, conversion, slavery and death. Columbus made two more voyages to the New World in 1498 and 1502, each time failing to find the mainland of China or the Indian Ocean and the Catholic monarchs had by this time grown tired of his failure, and also became concerned with reports of his brutal treatment of natives, and indeed he had been sent home from his third voyage in chains and stripped of his rank of governor. He died in 1506, refusing to believe, apparently, that he had discovered a new continent and not Asia. By the time of his death, however, there was acknowledgement that the islands of the Western Atlantic were part of a new separate landmass, which ultimately took the name of America, after one of the earliest proponents of this theory, Amerigo Vespucci. Portugal's interests in the New World, outlined by the terms of the Treaty of Tordesillas, saw them undertake a number of expeditions to the southern portion of the American continent. The most notable of these is certainly the expedition of Pedro Álvarez Cabral, who made landfall in Brazil in 1500 and claimed it for the Portuguese crown, setting in motion a long period of competition and conflict with the Spanish in the Americas. The relations between the Iberian kingdoms in Europe further complicated matters. Although Joao II's heir, Manuel I, pursued improved relations with the Catholic monarchs through marriage with their daughter Isabella, she died soon after giving birth to their son, who was to be heir apparent to the kingdoms of Portugal, Castile and Aragon. The child, Miguel, died before his second birthday, ending Portuguese ambitions of uniting the Iberian kingdoms under one ruler. Queen Isabella died in 1504, leaving her husband Ferdinand as regent of Castile temporarily. Because the succession rights of Castile fell to Isabella and Ferdinand's other daughter, Juana, or Joanna, her marriage to Philip I of the House of Habsburg brought Spain and its territories under the purview of a major European power when he was crowned King of Castile in 1506. His death in the same year, however, coupled with Juana's supposed mental illness, left King Ferdinand to act as regent of the Castilian throne until his death in 1516. Juana and Philip's son, Charles, born in 1500, ultimately inherited the Spanish thrones in 1517, uniting a significant number of European kingdoms under his rule. From his mother, his territories included Castile and its New World possessions, from his grandfather Ferdinand, he inherited Aragon, which incorporated Sicily, Sardinia, Naples, and some minor possessions in North Africa. And from his Habsburg inheritance, Charles was also heir to the Habsburg Netherlands and the Holy Roman Empire, which he inherited in 1519. His story, however, is one for another day. So I hope this outline has proven useful for you, the listener. If you're interested in discovering more, I would encourage you to delve further into the topics I've discussed briefly here. Time constraints prevent me from providing much detail on these themes, which are too complex and interesting to be consigned to one 30-minute podcast. In any case, we do intend to bring you a variety of detailed interviews throughout this series that will amplify many of the topics discussed here, as well as introduce several subjects to go beyond political matters in the 15th and 16th centuries. In the meantime, if you have any questions or suggestions, you can contact us on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.